Good morning. Before we begin, I want to share a couple of uh, things with you that, that you need to know about. Um, if you found the Winter Bible Study in the worship folder, the dates are wrong. The Winter Bible Study begins this evening at 5 o'clock in our fellowship hall, and then it is 11.30 on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week. I'm going to teach uh, those four sessions. I'm going to teach the books, uh, the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating adventure. There's only seven chapters total, but that will, be, um, that will allow us to, uh, to look at some things in depth. If you have ever, if you have ever fretted about your salvation, if you've ever doubted that you were saved, or if you've ever wondered if if you've uh, sort of lost that loving feeling, uh, if you've ever had concerns about assurance, let me invite you, especially uh, to tomorrow's session. I'm going to teach a lesson from 1 John tomorrow entitled, Saved Beyond Doubt. And it might be the most important Bible lesson you've ever, you've ever heard if that is a particular way that the enemy attacks you, the, the security of your, of your faith and the certainty of your destiny. So uh, first, second, and third, John, uh, it'll be a real adventure. I want to invite you to be a part of that tonight at five o'clock. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 11.30 to about 1. Uh, so if you can join us, uh, I'd like you to do that. Then, Wednesday evening this week, our regular uh, schedule is in place. Our pastor's Bible study is in this room at 6.30, 6.30 to 7.30 on Wednesdays. But this Wednesday, I have invited Daniel and Megan Schlegel. They're going to come lead us and report uh, on their time um, little over a year and a half in a black flag nation as they uh, serve the kingdom. So uh, the reason I'm telling you about that <clears throat> is uh, there's, there's biblical precedent, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> there's biblical precedent for reporting uh, on, on work that you've done uh, all the way back to the New Testament. Paul returned to the church at Antioch, his sending church, and gave a report on everything that had happened while he was away. What I, the reason I want you to know about this uh, on Wednesday evening is because you need to be here in person. Because of <clears throat> security reasons, uh, we, will, we will not live stream that session and we will not record it for, for later um, listening. It won't be on the internet in any place. So let me invite you to, to, to rearrange your schedule if you need to, to be here for what I think will be a really significant, sorry, a really significant time together. Several of you have asked about my cataract surgery. I had uh, an eye operated on this week and, uh, and everything went great and it's doing wonderfully. Uh, but I'm in that two week period now where my eyes are not working together. So after all these years, if you're one of those people that's been rooting for me to fall off the stage, uh, there's a real good chance that today is your day. So, so stay awake because it could happen at any time. We're in the book of 1 Peter. I'm teaching a lesson today entitled Salvation on Cosmic Display. I, the thought crossed my mind this week. I wonder what the most watched television broadcasts globally have ever been. I mean, if you just look at the U.S., it's usually... Um, a Super Bowl or something like that. But globally, what are the most watched broadcasts ever? So I did a, a search to see what I could find, and it really wasn't much of a surprise when I thought about it. The top 24 highest rated viewer events globally in history are all Olympics or World Cups. Now, that makes perfect sense because there are not that many events that, that have truly global interest. But uh, the top 24 are Olympic Games or World Cup uh, matches. If you, go, if you follow the list all the way down, the first non-athletic television event is number 25, 
the highest, the, all of the Olympics and World Cups, they're in the 3 to 3.6 billion viewer range. Yeah, wow. If you drop down to number 25, at about 2 billion viewers, the highest non-athletic event on the list was the funeral for Princess Diana. Yeah, that's what I thought. Number 26 uh, was the coverage of the 9-11 attacks. So that kind of tells you, you know, we want our soccer and we want our Olympics and that's, that's where the world is. In this passage in 1 Peter, he's going to talk to us about salvation. But he's going to come at it in, at, from an angle that we don't think about that often. He's going to talk about um, the awe-inspiring reality of what God has done. In, in, in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, what we've seen is a fascination with what we call the living hope. That is, in a great theological introduction, Peter tells us who we are, he tells us where we're going, and what's waiting for us there. An inheritance kept by God Himself protected by God himself. He reminds us theologically that we are guarded by God. Verse 5, that's our memory verse uh, for the month. He's going to move from that high theological introduction now into a more pastoral uh, kind of writing where he is speaking to uh, the believers that he loves and he's just sort of talking to them. Now, when I say pastoral, we tend to think of the word pastoral as a sort of soft, peaceful, gentle, you know, we, a pastoral scene is a landscape that, that just is undisturbed and peaceful. Um, when it comes to actual pastoring, being pastoral sometimes means that. It means coming up alongside somebody and putting your arms around their shoulders and just encouraging them as they walk through trouble. But sometimes being pastoral means a good kick in the pants. Well, Peter's going to give us both in, in, in this book, and particularly as he moves into pastor mode in, in the next verses. He's going to describe next for us, because we know who we are, because we know where we're headed and what waits for us, he's going to begin to describe the obvious traits that an authentic follower of Jesus has as they walk through this life, between what's been done for us and what is waiting for us, there, there, are, there are characteristics of a Christian that should be visibly obvious. Uh, the Puritans, hundreds of years ago, the Puritans used to refer to what they called visible sainthood. That is the idea that if you don't look like a Christian, if you don't act like a Christian, if you don't display Jesus, chances are you're not a true believer. Now, we, we balk at that because we think, well, I prayed a prayer when I was eight years old. I'm, I've got my ticket punched. I'm going to heaven. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible never says that your salvation depends on a prayer that you prayed when you were eight years old. The Bible always says the evidence of your faith is on display every single day that you live out your life. So you don't have to go back 10, 20, 30, 50 years to try and remember some vague moment to see whether you're saved or not. You should be able to look at characteristics that are the marks of believers and see if you line up with what it looks like to be a believer. Now, he's going to give us two of those marks in these passages. And so that's where I want us to begin. The first one, we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. And the first mark is what I've called being enthralled by salvation. Let's read these verses. Concerning this salvation. Now that's a reference to everything that's gone before. Remember in verse 9 he said, Because you were receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That unfolding goal, the reason that, that, that you uh, submitted to Christ, the reason that you came to Christ... Is this uh, is the goal to be saved? He says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you 
searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. The first mark of a believer is that they are enthralled by salvation. And he gives us three different groups of people as examples of this. He starts with what I've called Old Testament seekers. Peter wants us to grasp that the spiritual blessings that we now have are greater than anything that the Old Testament prophets ever even dreamed of. They had salvation, but they never saw the global scope and the intent that God had to change the whole world, to bring His kingdom into the whole world. Of all the truth that the prophets received through Revelation, the truth of salvation was their greatest passion. They pursued and found the desire of their souls. Now, now let's break down these verses. Look at what he says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Look at the language that describes what they did here. We have this image sometimes of Old Testament prophets sort of crossing their legs and sitting in a trance under a tree and that God sort of just drops a revelation on them. The reality was the Old Testament prophets found out what God wanted them to do and to say exactly the same way we do. They spent time in His presence searching His Word. Look at the language here. It doesn't say that they went into a trance, that they mumbled a mantra, that they, had, uh, they emptied their minds and waited for it to be filled. It says instead they searched and carefully investigated. They inquired. All of those words are words of mental, strenuous activity. That is, they took the Word of God and they studied it. Now, the Old Testament prophets, their Bible was the first five books of, the, of, of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't have all of the historical books. They didn't have all of the prophets, obviously. But there was enough in those first five books that had been given to Israel through Moses that they went into their time alone with God and they studied His Word. They asked Him questions because here's the thing. They were captivated in their minds by the reality that God had forgiven them and called them to be His children. Now, here's what, I, here's what I want you to see. If you have lost or never had this jaw-dropping fascination with the work of God in salvation, then I wonder if you really understand what salvation is about. You see, the prophets, of all the things that they knew about, they delivered messages but they understood two things. They understood that they were speaking to the generation in which they lived, but it was revealed to each of them that they were also testify they were also speaking to us. They were not verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. That is they knew that what they were writing had application for the people they were speaking to, but they also knew that God was inspiring in them something that he would use to, to touch and lead and guide generations, millennia to come. They got those revelations because they came into the presence of the Father and they searched, they inquired. Here's the application for us. We've got to get past a Christianity that is satisfied with one verse at the top of a single-page devotional book and think that we can read one verse and a nifty little heartwarming thought attached to a, a, a well-crafted story and that somehow we have fulfilled our obligation to God for the day. 
The fact of the matter is, the Word of God is meant to be studied, not just read, not just browsed. It's meant to be a tool in the hands of people who inquire of God, who search the Word. Listen, have you ever said, I, I need to know something, and, 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 and I don't understand this. God, teach me in your Word. Have you ever had something cross your path in reading, and you said, I, I, I don't understand what that is. And so you, you find yourself chasing this idea, this phrase, this word, all the way through the Bible and looking for it everywhere it shows up so that you can see what it means, so that you can understand in the whole context of God's Word what that original verse was that you couldn't quite grasp. That's the way we use the Word of God. It's meant to be studied. It's meant to be explored. See, an explorer goes to a place and he stays until he's exhausted everything that he can discover about that place. A tourist, on the other hand, a tourist intentionally just hits the highlights. We've got too many Christians in 2021 in America who are tourists in the Word of God. We need some explorers. We need some people who will dig deep. Some people who will go into the Word and say, I can't leave this until I understand it. He says the Old Testament prophets, they, won, they were so captivated by salvation that they wanted to know what God was up to. They knew that He had done something in their hearts and in their lives. They knew that He had given them a, 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 an opportunity to come out of their sin and to be in relationship. But as they began to study and, and, and search and inquire, they learned that it was all based on a promise of a Messiah that was going to come someday. And so they began to ask God to teach them about the Messiah. And it says that it was Christ Himself that, that showed them uh, when He testified, it was the Spirit of Christ within them that was indicating when He testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They didn't know all the detail of what was coming, but they knew that somehow God was going to send a cho chosen one, an anointed one, and He was going to come and there would be suffering and there would be dark days and there would be uh, pain and, and agony. But they knew that that same Messiah would have glory, that there would be victory. They didn't know all the details. They were looking from a distance and they couldn't quite get it to be exactly clear. But they searched they wanted to know. Listen, what they're doing, what they did with the first coming of Jesus, we do with the second coming of Jesus. Except that in our preoccupation with last days kinds of things, I find it terribly disturbing that we're more likely to order a book by Dr. Wonderful off of Amazon about the end times than we are to fight through Scripture to see what God Himself actually has to say. Quit reading books about the Bible and open the book. It requires us to search, to inquire, to gain a, a, a passion. And that passion for the Word flows out of this captivating reality that God has done something called salvation in us. Well, look at the next group. In verse 12, he said that these things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. New Testament preachers. Peter's referring to himself and the remainder of the twelve. He's thinking of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Philip and James and Jude and Stephen and others that are left unnamed in the New Testament. Salvation was the theme of their proclamation. They were captivated by it. They couldn't believe that God had allowed them to be called the children of God. He'd saved them out of sin. He gave them the privilege to be ministers of reconciliation. He promised them an inheritance protected and kept by God Himself. And they couldn't ever quite get over that reality. So captivated by salvation were they that they had to tell people, 
Even when the culture said, stop, you can't do that. Don't tell them. Don't talk about Jesus. You can't do that here. And they said, you do whatever you do. We can't help it. Why couldn't they help it? Because they were so captivated by what salvation had done in them. That the message was like in Jeremiah, a fire burning in his bones that had to be released. So we're so casual about our our salvation. We don't feel any need to spend time in the Word of God. We certainly don't feel any particular compulsion to talk to other people about it. Listen, if we're not in the Word and we're not sharing the faith in conversation, just where are the marks of Christian life that you're relying on to prove your testimony? See, Peter is being pastoral here Not in the sense that he's patting everybody on the head and saying, peace, 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 peace. He's being pastoral here because he's saying, I don't want anybody that I'm spiritually responsible for as a pastor to not make it to heaven because they trusted in the wrong things. You know, it was Charles Spurgeon, I think, who said originally this idea that When we get to heaven, there'll be three great and overwhelming surprises. The first surprise is there will be people there that you didn't expect to be there. The second surprise is there won't be some people there that you thought for sure were going to be there. But he says the most profound surprise will be when you stop and realize that by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ that you were allowed to be there. You see, if you haven't found yourself at some point along the way speechless because of your salvation, you're not doing it right. The God who spoke creation into existence condescended to take sin on Himself so that you could be in relationship with Him for eternity in heaven. Which part of that can you be casual about? God saved us through Christ. The Old Testament prophets searched because they were fascinated by the story of redemption that was unfolding before their eyes. The New Testament preachers, they couldn't help themselves because they knew more than the prophets. They had seen Jesus. They, they saw the life. They knew about the incarnation. They saw the life that He lived. They, they suffered through that weekend when He was in the tomb. But they remembered, uh, they remembered the, the day of, of resurrection. And it changed everything. You know, Peter was, uh, was hiding He was embarrassed by a a waitress. But after the resurrection, he becomes the head of the church. Thomas was the doubter. He was the one that said, unless I touch those, those wounds with my own hands, I won't believe them. Thomas, church history tells us, Thomas carried the gospel to India. And all Christian roots in India come from that Apostle who who went there on his own and suffered a martyr's death, but he took the gospel to a place where they'd never heard about Jesus. Every story of every disciple is that they were one thing before the resurrection, but they were something different after the resurrection. Why? Because the reality of what God had done so transformed them that they were actually different people. We use that language all the time. We say, I'm saved. I'm being transformed. I'm sanctified. But the bottom line is, are you different than you used to be? Because if you are not, what's the point? There's one more group here. It's in the end of verse 12. I call them angelic observers. Peter says, angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Now, that's an interesting 
statement. If you survey a study of angels throughout Scripture, you find that angels serve God in many ways. They battle demons. They deliver messages. They serve God in a number of other services. They protect saints. Yet the overpowering impulse of their existence, their primary responsibility above everything else they do, angels praise God's glory. That's their main function. And here we have angels who have an overpowering impulse to understand the wonders of God's grace towards sinful men because their very existence is strengthened if they can grasp in some way what God has done. Think about it. We see angels at the announcement of the birth of Jesus. That angel comes. He appears to the shepherds. He says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And, and, and the announcement is made. Here's where my sanctified imagination kicks in. There were, it says in the text of Luke chapter 2, then there were with the angel a host, a multitude of the heavenly host, a multitude of angels singing and praising, saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men of goodwill. In my sanctified imagination, here's what happened. It's not that God said, okay, it's time for the announcement. The baby's going to be born. Uh, go tell everybody this is all hands on deck. Everybody has to be there. Everybody show up for, for heavenly choir practice. No, I'll tell you what was happening. The announcement was given to a particular angel who came and delivered the message. The rest of the host of heaven, they were just singing praises to the glory of God. This was the most amazing thing they had ever seen. You see, what happened is they were singing, I'm convinced. And after the announcement was made, God just pulls the curtain back. The shepherds didn't get that concert for their benefit. They were just gifted the opportunity to glimpse a concert that was already going on. Why? Because they had been watching with fascination the story of mankind from the beginning. See, angels are not subject to salvation. The Bible tells us that there are angels who serve God and there are angels who rebelled against God. There's no story of redemption for angels. There's no gift of salvation. In fact, the angels that have rebelled against God, the Bible is very clear. There is a place already constructed where they will be consigned to punishment and separation for eternity. Angels don't get salvation, but they, are, they have been captivated since the very beginning because God did something they didn't expect. He created something brand new called man, and He created him in His image. Well, if that's not enough to boggle the mind, He gave that man the ability to choose freely who he would love, who he would obey, what choices he would make. And in that failure to make good choices, man separated himself from God because of his sin. And then God did the absolute unthinkable thing. Instead of just consigning rebellion men, rebellious men to go where rebellious angels went, God took the responsibility for that sin on Himself. God became flesh and He lived among men so that He could lay down His life voluntarily so that He could pay a penalty for sin so that those sinful men created in the image of God could be restored into relationship with Him. Angels were there at the birth singing praises. Angels were there at the tomb. You remember the angel that the, the, that the disciples found when they went to the empty tomb? I love the angel because he's just real matter of fact. He's so surprised that they're so surprised. He says, well, he's risen just as he said. Hello, he's been telling you this. We've been watching every move. He came it was mind-boggling that God allowed Himself to be abused at the hands of sinners to lay down His life for those same sinners. 
And he was laid in this tomb. But we knew, we knew, we've been watching from the balcony of heaven. The stone was rolled away and he came back alive because he said he would. They were there at the resurrection. They were there at the ascension. Think about this. You know, we only have the story of the ascension from the, the earthbound perspective. It says that the disciples were there. You imagine them in kind of a semicircle. Jesus speaks his last words and he begins to rise. And they're looking and they're watching. And they're trying to keep his, vis- his image and vision. And, and pretty soon it, it's blurry. And, and, then, and then there's kind of a, a glint. And, and then nothing. He's gone. There is that one angel that comes and says, guys, he, he told you to go back to Galilee and get on with things. He told you to go to Jerusalem and wait. But have you ever considered the ascension from the other end? He leaves their view and disappears only to enter on the other end the multitudes celebrating, praising God, calling out for His glory. Why? Because angels have been straining from day one over the banister of heaven watching this story unfold with their jaws on the floor in awe of what God has chosen to do. How can we be so casual with the reality that God took it upon Himself to let us be saved? Listen, if you are not enthralled, if you are not captivated, if you're not enamored, with the work of God in your life in salvation. Ask yourself why. Because this should be the single thing in our life that we never get over. Enthralled by salvation. But there's a second mark of authentic Christians here. It's in the next four verses, 13 through 16. I've called it enthusiastic for the Jesus life. If you are enthralled with salvation, it should push you to study the Word of God. It should should empower you to talk to other people about Jesus. It should keep the wonder of salvation in the front of your brain. But there is this enthusiasm to live this life that we've been invited to. Look at beginning verse 13. We'll read this paragraph. Peter says, therefore, meaning everything we've just seen, because of the, the, the wonder in the Old Testament prophets, because of the wonder in the New Testament preachers, because of the wonder even in angels themselves. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. He starts here in verse 13 with what I've called a disciplined hope. He says, Therefore. That means the obligations that he's about to unfold in verse 13 flow out of the privileges of verses 3 through 12. Peter's already described our future. Now he calls for commitment and action in the present. And he starts with this phrase, with your minds ready for action. Now, this is one of those rare moments. I like this this translation overall. But sometimes I like the old language. This translation says, with your minds ready for action. The old translation says, therefore... Gird up the loins of your minds for action. Now, let me give you the picture behind that phrase. You've seen in the Middle East today that um, really it's more the white collar class today, but it's not unusual to see people from that part of the world wearing as their daily attire long flowing robes, usually belted in the middle often white because of the heat of the sun and how white reflects that that heat. Well, that was even more common 2,000 years ago when those kinds of long robes were the normal daily uh, clothing used in that part of the world. 
it was good because it was cooler and, and it worked pretty well, except for one time. Whenever you had manual labor in front of you, whenever you had to do something strenuous, for example, if you had to run somewhere or do some heavy lifting or something, those long flowing robes would get in the way. They would interfere. So what they would do, it was called girding your loins. They would lift up the front part of the robe and they would reach back between their legs and grab the back part of the robe and they would pull it through and then they would take what they had in their hands and they would tuck it into their sash or their belt. Now what happens is you're covered down to about your knees but the long flowing robes are now out of your way. If you need to do heavy lifting, manual labor, if you need to run somewhere, you girded your loins, you got your robes out of the way so that nothing hindered you, nothing interfered with you doing the heavy lifting that you needed to do. Well, in verse 13, Peter comes to us and he uses that image that would have been understandable to all of his readers and he basically says, okay, now do that with your mind. Eliminate those things that slow you down, that get in the way, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, get ready for action. He's literally trying to say here, collect your wits, be intellectually alert, be mentally prepared for the rigors of living the Christian life in a non-Christian culture. It involves focus concentration, and discernment. It means that believers are forbidden to lapse into intellectual slothfulness. Frankly, the Holy Spirit has an affinity for a trained mind. Christians are called to be mentally sharp, able to focus, to concentrate, to discern. We must develop the ability to do strenuous thinking. Part of the reason I was motivated to begin Truth Currents, which which uh, comes out on Fridays, is because I wanted to help our church develop the ability to take the assault of information that comes to us in this generation, but be mentally set in a way that we can evaluate the events of our day from a biblical perspective. It's a learned skill that requires effort. Now, this is, this is the verse that I go to when people come to me and say things like, you know, I just don't get anything out of the Word of God when I read it. Okay, keep reading it. Well, you know, my mind wanders when I pray and I, I, I lose focus. Okay, keep praying. Well, you know, I, I just, I can't memorize Scripture. Okay. Um, do you know your telephone number? Can you find your way home from church this morning? I mean, there might be a couple of you. The answer is no, but, (laughs) but by and large, I think you can find your way home. Why? Because we can memorize the things that are important to us. Don't tell me that you can't memorize scripture until you have put your best trained intellect into the process of memorizing Scripture, of implanting it into your, into your mind and into your soul. You see, this discipline, this mental discipline that Peter is calling us to, it, it's, just like, it's just like any other exercise. You work up to it. Listen, you don't walk down the aisle and say, I'm going to be super Christian tomorrow. And then all of a sudden you do everything the way it's supposed to be. In the same way that a weightlifter doesn't say, okay, uh, never, never deadlifted before, but I'm going to start about 400 pounds. No, you might get to 400 pounds, but you have to start somewhere less. A runner doesn't wake up one day and say, I've never run before, but I'm going to, um, I'm going to run my first marathon today. No, you can get to the place where you can run a marathon, but you can't get there on day one. You work up to it. The Christian life intellectually is exactly the same way. You practice concentration. You practice mental discipline. You practice being girded up for action mentally. How do you do that? You read the Word. But you don't just read it. You study it. You pray. But you don't just pray, 
You stay after it. Listen, I, I, I can remember, I can remember in my life, I can remember when prayer went from being mechanical, something I do because I'm supposed to do it, to being relationship. I know where I was. I can, I can remember where the realization was. It's like anything else. You say, I don't like Shakespeare. I mean, it's too hard to read. I thought that too until I took a semester course in Shakespeare. You know what got me over the hump? Reading Shakespeare. Reading it enough to begin to understand the language, to begin to grasp the flow of thought, to begin to be aware of how the plot was unfolding. That doesn't come on day one. But if you're enthralled with salvation, the Word becomes something that you're determined to master because you want what you know is in there. Prayer becomes something that you pursue Say, well, my mind wanders to my my to-do list and and all the things going on in my life. I get that. I've been there. But you fight through that. How do you get there? You pray more. The enemy distracts you because he wants you to turn away. You stay the course. And prayer opens up to a throne room of grace that that you never knew was there. We have to be girded up for action. We live in the media generation. Our brains operate in three-minute segments and 30-second sound bites. We seldom read a book longer than a blog post. Our minds wander in prayer because we can't concentrate. Bible study bores us because there are no moving images. We must gird our minds for action. Listen, I spend, I don't know how many hours, I don't keep track. It's different week to week. But I spend multiple hours every week in sermon preparation. If you attend every Sunday and you come to my Bible study every Wednesday night, you hear somewhere between one and a half to two hours of sermons a week. 250 years ago, the father of the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan theologian and pastor, his biography tells us that he spent up to 13 hours a day in his study And his people heard sermons two to three hours each time he preached them. Yeah, I didn't hear an amen then. (laughs) You know, we're probably never going back to three-hour sermons. But we have got to develop the ability to focus on and grasp the essentials of our faith. The gospel is simple enough for a child, but it has truths deep enough for a lifetime of study. So gird up your minds for action. Look at where he takes us in this verse. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. That means be spiritually alert to the mental intoxication of the world. Modern Christians, I believe, seldom sin on purpose. They mostly sin By carelessness, we sin because we aren't paying attention. Satan is subtle. The devil is tricky. He's been doing this a long time. I don't know many people who wake up in the morning and they make their to-do list and they go, okay, and I've got these three sins I've got to get in today. That's not what happens. We go out. We haven't spent time in the Word, so our mind is not right. We haven't spent time in the presence of the Lord, so our spirits are not right. We haven't taken time to put on the armor of God so our, 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 our spiritual defenses are not right. And we go out in our day and all of a sudden we say something we shouldn't say. We make a decision we shouldn't decide. Uh, we, make, we take an action that we should never do. And then we go home that night and we go, Father, I'm really sorry for the way I've messed up today. You know what that is? That pattern of lack of preparation followed by sin, followed by regret, that is the profile of a defeated and mediocre Christian. But let me tell you how things change when you spend time in the Word, when you enter into the presence of the Father, when you put on the spiritual armor 
that you've been given for the day. Listen, do you understand that you have everything in you right now? If you are a follower of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit resides in you, you have everything in you already to live the Christian life at the level Jesus has called you to. You don't read the Bible because you're trying to earn karma points to be stronger against temptation. You don't pray because you're trying to get God on, on, on your side so that He's not put out with you throughout the day. Those are all devilish misunderstandings. When you spend time in the Word, when you pray, when you put on the armor of God, what you are doing is you are intellectually acknowledging, I know who I am, I know who lives in me, and today I live like who I really am. It's time to be sober-minded. We have a house next door. It's filled with ladies that are, we call it a sober living house. It's filled with ladies who have come out of addiction, who've come out of, uh, of some kind of, uh, of life-gripping uh, uh, obsession. And they're learning how to live soberly. You know what? They get up every morning and they have to go through a routine. And that routine says, I'm going to stay sober today. I'm going to be aware of the temptations that intoxicate me. I'm going to be alert to the influences that try and pull me in the wrong direction. I'm going to be mentally alert to those things that try and lead me back into addiction. Today, I stay sober. That's what Paul means here when he says, be sober-minded. He means you get up in the morning and you say, today, I live for Christ. I'm going to be aware of the schemes of the, the, schemes of the devil as he tries to, to trick me, I'm going to know the temptations that are customized for me, that try and appeal to me, that try and draw me away to be intoxicated. I'm going to turn away from those. I'll have nothing to do with those because they're in the front of my mind. Why are they in the front of your mind? You know, temptation sneaks up on us when we're not paying attention. Spending time in the Word of God, being spiritually alert, being mentally sharp, being sober-minded, it means we leave the house ready and aware of what's coming for us. You don't want the, the devil to sneak up on you. That's his, that's his favorite M.O. You know how we keep him from sneaking up on us? We fill ourselves with Jesus. And then we go out. And instead of dodging the devil, James tells us we resist him, he flees from us. The devil starts dodging us. I'm not just using preacher talk. I'm talking about the life that you were meant to live. Don't be satisfied to be a defeated, mediocre follower of Jesus. Because you don't have to be. With your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope that means live with the ever-present expectation of the Lord's return. Outside of a sermon or a book, when was the last time you said, Lord, man, let it be today. John. John gets this series of visions given to him in the book of Revelation. Glimpses of the victory of the church. Glimpses of the celebration of the saints. Glimpses of angelic worship around the throne. Glimpses of the Lamb defeating the beast. Glimpses of a world made right. Glimpses of justice. Not, not, not this twisted thing that we call justice in, in, in our day, but true justice where, where right always wins and wrong is set aside and eliminated. He sees all of that. And how does he finish the book of Revelation? With this prayer. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You see, he had pondered what's in store for us. And his prayer became, Lord, call us home. Wrap it up. Bring the victory. That's what Peter means here. 
set your mind on the grace that will be revealed at the coming of our Lord Jesus. These verses tell us what is coming. It tell, that because we know what's coming, we should reorder our priorities according to God's agenda. We should rearrange our thoughts to follow Christ's pattern. We should reconstruct our behavior to produce long-term spiritual growth. Because Jesus is coming back, everything is measured in light of this expectation. That disciplined hope is the mark of authenticity. But there's one last thing. I've called it obedient holiness. That's the next verse where he says, as obedient children. Now, the, the Greek literally says, uh, I think it's a little bit stronger. It says, as children of obedience. Our exalted position as children of God should produce the imitation of the Father, which is a common trait of childhood. I mean, if we're already enamored with this awesome reality that we are now the children of God, shouldn't we pursue the Father the way a child does? I mean, every little girl loves to put on jewelry and makeup. Because she sees her mommy do it. She loves to, ba- to, to wash her dolls because she sees mommy bathe the children. She loves to play with dishes because she sees mom at work in the kitchen. Boys, they like to drag around shovels and, and play lawnmowers because they see dad do those things. It's a normal, natural characteristic of childhood to imitate Mom and Dad, shouldn't the imitation of our Father be the normal behavior for the children of God? Shouldn't that be what we do? Shouldn't we be in the Word studying to know what Jesus was like? We've got to quit reading books about the Bible and start reading the Bible. We got every devotional under the sun that tells us about Jesus, but we don't read the Word. We got books that tell us about the end times, but we don't read the Word. Listen, I'm not against Christian literature in general, but don't substitute those books for this book. Find out what Jesus was like, because in the process of finding out what Jesus was like, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you're supposed to be like, how to live. Up to who you already are. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. What he's going to do in telling us how to be obedient children is he's going to give us both a positive and a negative uh, command. This is the negative one. Do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. We look and act like the world because we focus our attention on the world. We are too often more concerned with blending in than standing out. I remember when the Susan B. Anthony dollar came out. Probably nobody in this room has a Susan B. Anthony dollar in their pocket right now. You know why? Because the public rejected them. Because they looked too much like a quarter. People kept putting a dollar in a machine when they thought it was a quarter. So they quit using them. We've got too many Christians that are worth a dollar, but they act like they're 25 cents. Live up to who you already are, to the spirit that is in you, to the life that you've been invited to. We are to live a holy life. Do not be conformed. But then there's the positive charge there. He says, instead, as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. That's the positive command. Be holy. Jesus died to save us from our sin, not in our sin. Holiness has two parts, two sides of the same coin. Holiness is, first of all, to be set apart from evil or or ordinary or evil use. We think we're holy if we don't do bad stuff. But you see, the flip side of holiness is to be devoted to glorifying God. We've got too many people who are satisfied with just not doing bad stuff. They think that's all that's required. I'm as good as the next guy. Well, good for you. You're as good as the next guy. Unfortunately, the next guy isn't the standard against which you will be measured. Do not be satisfied to be a mediocre, defeated Christian. 
God's desire for a holy people is the ultimate reason why moral absolutes exist in the world and and in the universe. The acceptability of sin is not determined by cultural mores. Just because our culture says something is legal or permissible doesn't mean that it's right. And just because they say something is wrong doesn't make it wrong. You've got to understand the difference between absolute truth and cultural mores. For example, belching. Whether belching is an insult or a compliment after a meal, that's determined by the culture. But there are other things that are not up to the culture to determine. Like murdering babies still in the womb. Do you realize if you do the numbers, it depends on where you get your numbers exactly, but if you do a general assessment since Roe versus Wade in the early 70s was put into place, Americans have killed 61 million babies. To put that in perspective, if you took all the dead of Mount Zedong, Joseph Stalin, and Adolf Hitler and put them together, you might not reach 61 million. We have a culture that passes laws as though we are the standard against which truth is measured. The reality is we need to gird up our minds for action because we live in a culture that needs sharp, intelligent, dedicated followers of Jesus to engage the culture with truth because they don't know what truth is. We need to live a life that does not conform. We need to be holy. Not because because we don't do bad stuff. We need to be holy because our Father is holy. That means we're devoted to what He's devoted to. There are probably churches across this country meeting today filled with people who will walk out the door untransformed. We can't be that people. Gird up your minds for action. Be sober-minded against the intoxications of worldliness. Set your sights on an obedient holiness that makes us like Jesus. Live up to who you were created, redeemed, and gifted to be. We are the children of God. And that should blow our minds. Do you have a fascination, an enthrallment, a captivation in your mind that you are a saved follower of Jesus? And do you have a passion, an enthusiasm, a devotion to living the Jesus life that you've been invited to? Those are the marks of a growing, healthy Jesus follower. If that's not you, then you need to decide, do I need to meet Jesus for the first time? Do I need to come to the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness for my satisfaction at at, at a mediocre level and, and open my life up? to to the transformation of the Spirit that's in me? Do I need to be a part of a church so that I'm not trying to live this life all by myself? Do I need to be in a church where they share life, where they live in community with each other? Whatever you need to do, today is when you need to do it. Our pastors are going to be right here. You can pray with one of them. You can pray by yourself. You can talk to them about salvation. You can talk to them about walking with Jesus You can talk to them about church membership. Whatever you need to do, today is that day. 
just come and pray in this sacred space. Our pastors will pray with you if you want. They'll, they'll leave you to yourself if you want that. Peter was being very pastoral here. The bottom line of this whole passage was, I love you too much to leave you where you are. It's time for us to advance in our Christ-likeness and live the life that we've already been given. Live it to the full so that mentally and in our actions we reflect our Lord and Master. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. What an awesome passage this is that You've given and preserved for us. Lord, I pray in these moments that You would make Your direction plain and clear that we would know without question the call that You're placing on our lives. And Father, that in this moment, everyone here would be drawn one step closer to You either to salvation for the first time or devotion to a higher level. Father, advance us as Your children. We, we are so stunned that we're allowed to be called the children of God. Father, let us never get over precisely what You have done and are doing in us. Let us put Jesus on display. In His name we pray. Amen.